Hey everyone, welcome back to Great Quarter Guys. This is our episode 51, the show where the walls between finance and freight are none. I'm your host, Andrew Cox. I've got Seth home with me again today. We've got a fun episode. We are going to talk about the logistics hiring explosion that happened in the last couple months. We're also going to talk about the SoftBank investment in Flock Freight. They recently raised uh, over $100 million, uh, led by SoftBank, of course. And we're going to talk about its potential impact to the LTL landscape. Uh, they're, they're kind of going after a little niche of the LTL, and we think that it could have some promise, but there's definitely some questions to be answered. So before we do that, we're going to get into our uh, our seat or no, ode to seat or no, uh, ode to highly questionable Dan Lebitard's old show. I just heard last week that Dan Lebitard and ESPN are none anymore. They they let him go. So uh, they're going to get rid of that show. But we're going to keep doing You Care or Not because it's fun for us. And we've got some huge IPOs coming up this week. We're going to discuss two of them to begin with. The first one is DoorDash. They will begin trading tomorrow. It is the largest food delivery company in the country uh, and is expected to price shares today ahead of trading tomorrow. It's expected to pick a price on the high end or above its already increasing target range of $90 to $95 per share, which would give the company an a valuation of $36 billion. This is up from $15 billion just earlier this year and $1.4 billion in 2018. Seth, I'll start with you. You care or not about this DoorDash IPO? I do care. And um, so I watched the roadshow, so did you. And, uh, you know, my initial instincts going into this were negative. And then, um, you know, I kind of looked at the financials and dug into the business for about an hour. And I was actually came away really impressed uh, with it. And it's, you know, it's big. It's growing really fast. It's actually profitable, at least on an adjusted EBITDA basis. Uh, it's got a couple hundred million in free cash flow. Uh, its take rates are ramping. And it's got 50% market share of the U.S. food delivery market. 58% in the suburbs. So, I mean, I could go on with these statistics, but it's growing 270% a year. And then they've got 5 million uh, monthly dashers where it gets you that unlimited delivery for 9.99 a month. So overall, I mean, if this thing prices at the range where it's expected to, looks like it's about seven times revenue for a company growing. You know, people are all excited about Snowflake, as you know, is it's probably the highest valuation in tech. You're talking about 100 times sales. This company's growing two and a half times faster than Snowflake is. And it's, you know, you're talking about a seven uh, EV to revenue multiple rather than rather than 100 times. Now, the, the margin potential is probably not there, but uh, I've, I've found it actually pretty compelling, unless it pops by 50 or 100 percent, which obviously, you know, all bets are off at that point. Well, Seth, before I give you my opinion, uh, do you think DoorDash or, or just food delivery in general is a stopgap uh, to try to get these restaurants to the next phase, get us to a vaccine where people can come back in the restaurant? Or do you really think that food delivery has legs and it's here to stay uh, post-vaccine, post-COVID? I definitely think it has legs to stay. It will decelerate. You know, one other thing I found interesting that I forgot to mention uh, in the roadshow, I thought it was really interesting. They called themselves a logistics company about mm. 30 times, if I can recall. So I think they want to be valued as freight tech and not and thought of that way and not as food delivery. Now, you know, uh, if you look sequentially, the business, I think it did 200 million in revenue in Q1 of 2020, and it's up to an $800 million run rate uh, in Q4. So 
you know, are you going to continue to grow 270%? No, but uh, I saw that the one analyst so far who's picked up coverage, and usually analysts don't until, uh, you know, months after the IPO, because they're, they're usually restricted if they're involved in the, in the process. But, you know, he's estimating that, that it should grow 56% in 2021. That's Ooh. still pretty attractive. Yeah. And, you're, you know, if you look at penetration for food delivery, uh, they had that chart in the roadshow. And I think off the top of my head, don't quote me, but I want to say it's 4 or 6%. And that compares to, you know, online travel agencies like Booking.com. You're talking about a 60% penetration for mm. travel. So uh, definitely when you've got 50% share and you've got a trillion-dollar market like like there you have with restaurant spending in the U.S., um, long way to go in terms of growth. Now, there's definitely going to be a slowdown. But uh, I do think that especially – if they can convert more users to that subscription model, mm-hmm. while at the same time sort of balancing making money off of restaurants without angering them or feeling like they're taking all their profitability from them, uh, then I think they'll have a winning model. I think that's a really important point, and that's working with the restaurants. Uh, you know, you're working in a really low margin business. It's a tough business to be in. That's that's food and and uh, and restaurants in general. So I think it's important for them that they're going to have to manage these long-term relationships with a low-margin business. And there's one thing there's one thing that competitors are doing that I think they need to do more of, and that's uh, helping bulk order things that they can order in general. So there's a company called Slice who does something similar to Grubhub and, and DoorDash, but they don't offer the actual driver. So they help with the logistics, they help with the order placement, they help you build website uh, to help you take online orders, but they don't give you a driver itself. And what Slice does also is is Slice is aimed at independent pizzerias, by the way. And so they help uh, independent pizzerias bulk and buy pizza boxes, uh, help them save money on pizza boxes. So I think it's things like that that DoorDash needs to do more of. And then I also worry that DoorDash will eventually just get beat out by cheaper competitors. I mean, they take a really high rate. I I think you said it was um, like 12% 12%, overall. On on average, but as we talked about, I think they take a lot, you know, significantly more from your smaller restaurant. Whereas when they're doing deals with the McDonald's and the Chipotle's of the world, they're probably only able to, who knows, it's not disclosed, but yep. maybe 5%. Right. So I just think worrying, you know, working with the smaller ones, they're going to have to, if they're going to maintain these long-term relationships, I think they, one, are going to have to drop their take rate uh, eventually. And then two, I think they need to work in bulk to help, you know, maintain relationships in ways that they can, they can use their size and aggregate to do so. Uh, there's another example. So Chow Now, I don't know if you've heard of them, but it's another similar startup to uh, Dash. But again, they don't offer the driver. They offer everything but the driver. And they only charge 100 bucks a month flat fee uh, for their service. They've seen 5x growth in volume this year. They were about, about five about 500 million at the beginning of the year, now about 2.5 billion. So I think there's there's going to be a D to C, a direct to consumer movement at restaurants, and I think that companies like Slice and like Chow Now, without offering the actually delivery driver, allowing the the company itself, the restaurant itself, to own that last mile, own the delivery of the food. I think more people will move to that, uh, and I think that may be a spot where DoorDash loses some market share moving forward. But we'll see. I mean, I think it's a great company. Yeah. Uh, I think you know the the, the the subscription model is fantastic. Six hundred million dollars, roughly, in annual recurring revenue. They can they can boost that up. I mean, who knows? Yeah, and I mean, the last thing I would say is I think eighty percent of their business comes from repeat customers, which is always attractive. Um, and then you don't have to pay to go out there and acquire those customers again. So I, I think they'll do a good job of holding on that. Uh, the other thing is, uh, you know, it, you saw this with airlines a few years ago, and then COVID ruined it all. But there's been a ton of consolidation in this industry mm-hmm. over the last year or two, and I think that's going to really improve the economics. So SoftBank 
in particular, funded uh, majority investor in DoorDash spent you know billions of dollars to take that 50%, but then they just bought Caviar from Square for a couple hundred million dollars. Uh, Grubhub sold itself to Just Eat Takeaway, yep. and uh, which is a, a a British company, and then uh, who's the third one? DoorDash uh, and. Uh, and Uber Eats. Uber Eats, yeah. Yeah. And so I think it's going to be a much more rational market. So if they can all sort of gradually lower their take rates and just let the market naturally grow, as I think it will, uh, sort of in that long term, I think I actually think, you know, everything has a price, too. Uh, I think... Uh, you know, it looks pretty good, at least where at that $90. All right, last question before we move to Airbnb. You said that 80% of revenue is from repeat customers, but do you worry there's a, a loyalty factor that there's not much of a moat? I mean, for me, if I'm getting an Uber or a Lyft, I go with whatever's cheapest every time, no matter what. I mean, I got to think other customers do the same. Do you think that is the natural evolution, bringing down take rates? Or, uh, or, or I mean, what do you think? Do you think there's a loyalty problem? Uh, I think there's better loyalty than there is with ride sharing. Uh, like with ride sharing, it's pretty simple. You've got two apps. So I've done that too, but I generally don't go like, I don't want to go in there and abandon my cart of that. I've, that I've taken the menu and then go delete everything and I then see. go log out. It's it's, there's less friction and price comparing with the ride sharing model. Mm-hmm. Cause you just open up the two apps right next to each other. And you, uh, you know, I, I would think that there's definitely, you know, and, and honestly, I think Uber eats take rate has been ramping. Uh, and you know, uh, DoorDash gave 50% discounts to, I think, most of their restaurant partners uh, because they were hurting so bad during COVID. But that withstanding, I believe the general take rates for the overall industry, Uber Eats and DoorDash, have been rising a little bit. I mean, 12% to me, uh, especially as we've talked about many times, I think, on this show, uh, what a lot of restaurants do is if they charge 12% on average in commissions, they just raise the Grubhub menu and uh, DoorDash price prices by that, or as much as they can to sort of offset and eat mm-hmm. a little bit into that fee. So we can move on to Airbnb. But um, yeah, I do think take rates, I don't think that you're going to see massive pressure on take rates. All right. Let's move on to Airbnb. So Airbnb is set to go public this week as well with shares to begin trading Thursday. As I said, uh, they are aiming for shares in the range of 45 to $55, which would imply a value of around $30 billion. What do you think, Seth? You care or not about the Airbnb IPO? I do. And I think you and I both love this one. Um, I really like the, uh, you know, going into this. So valuation aside, I definitely prefer Airbnb. Um, it has that global network effect and it's, they take more like a 15% off the top and they have a great technology platform and they basically have, you know, they, they have that, uh, what's that effect called? Uh, any any time an investment has a verb, so Google it. Yeah, right. Kleenex. Right. Yeah. That's always Am- you know Amazon. Um, that's usually always a good investment, and they turn into huge companies. Um, so they have that going for them. Uh, you know they were doing fantastically before COVID. The business got decimated in, in Q2, mm-hmm. but it's really snapped right back. And then they've they've cut a lot of expenses in the meantime, and sort of laid off some of that workforce, which as if we can get the vaccine in most people's arms by, you know, sort of the second, third quarter of this year, you sh- I, I would guess that this business is growing 50 or 100% again. And that's, and that's on a $5 billion run rate. So, um, and then, you know, the margins, I think, are ultimately really attractive here uh, long-term. And it's obviously just an enormous market. So really sort of positively inclined on Airbnb. And uh, I want to hear your thoughts on it too. But it's going to be, about, in terms of the investment, 
I do think this one's going to be way oversubscribed, and it's going to be up probably triple digits when it when it starts trading. Yeah, agreed. I think this is going to be another snowflake or even lemonade the way it was. It, it quickly sold off, but it doubled there within a couple hours. I think you're going to see that type of demand on this stock when it comes out on Thursday. But yeah, my notes are that it like you like you said, it showed really impressive resiliency. They I think they went down like 80 or 90 percent uh, in in Q2 on total bookings. They quickly have snapped back. I think they're roughly 20 percent down, down year 20. over year right now, which is <laughs> incredible compared to the other hotelers. Uh, uh, and people in their in their industry. I also think there's a plausible path to pro- profitability. As you said, they were doing really well pre-COVID. I think they notched one or two even positive quarters back then. So uh, I think there's a much more plausible path to profitability for them, comparing them to, uh, to DoorDash here. And they proved the value of the brand this year, which is something they, they highlighted in the roadshow. But they were spending boatloads of money on marketing, billions of dollars every year on marketing up until this year. They've cranked that down enormously. And by, the end, by now, uh, in Q3, I think they said 93% of their traffic was uh, purely direct traffic. Yeah, that I love that. That is was remarkable. Good, yeah, so and I also like the the way they were able to quickly sort of innovate and adapt their business model. So I like their CEO Brian Chesky a lot. He seems, you know, he's the founder of the company yeah. and what they did is they quickly adapted. So, you know, they saw that big shift where, you know, in April just people stopped traveling altogether, but then people can't just stay in the house all times. They yep. started traveling more locally and mm-hmm. staying longer. Yes. And so that business model was really adaptable to that. Uh, and and I think that's one another good characteristic. Of and I think the, uh, there's a, an actual point here that I, I don't think it's all Airbnb. Obviously, most of it is COVID induced. But I really think that the, the change in travel has some staying power long term in, in that people will take more trips to closer areas, stay in Airbnbs for a longer stay rather than maybe going off to Europe or, or to South America somewhere. I really do think that people will take more trips uh, in their regions uh, like they have been for COVID moving forward. I know I certainly will. And that really benefits Airbnb as well. Yeah. And they they also touched on, and I, I'd, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts, but a lot of their roadshow focused on the fact that basically when you use Airbnb, it, it, it's not just bland and vanilla. You get to know Design the local driven. culture yeah. and the landscape, yeah. and you get to know people, and you get more of the real experience from where you're traveling. And um, I think if that, you know, for me, the biggest roadblock was sort of the, uh, I wouldn't, I think I wouldn't want to rent out my house for Airbnb just because I was young once and I know what happens there <laughs> and or I wouldn't, you know, strangers. But they've 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 done a pretty good job getting over all that sort of thing and handling it. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to go too deep on this, but they've them and Uber uh, and Amazon as well. They've solidified the five star rating model both ways uh, to both user and to the leaser of the house. And that's completely proven trust. It's it's the in it's the in-app messaging. It's the secure payments. And it's that five star review system that builds the trust that allows strangers to, to sleep in other people's homes. It's really a remarkable thing. If you would have told me 25 years ago that I stay in strangers homes every time I leave my house to go out of town, I would have told you you're crazy. Yeah, it seems just a little weird. It seemed really weird to me the first time I, I did Airbnb five Ten years ago, or whatever, yeah. but um, but then you do it, and you realize how easy it is, and and, and yeah. how awesome it is. All right, so let's, let's let's try to fly through these next two to get to our main conversation. So uh, the next next one's on Apple Fitness. Apple Fitness Plus is set to launch in six countries next week. Initially, they've got a team of about twenty one trainers to lead classes. This is a really hot space. We've seen uh, Peloton stock exploding this year. We've seen the Mirror ac- uh, acquisition by Lululemon. Tonal's doing well as well. What do you think? You care or not about Apple Fitness Plus? I don't care, and. Um you know, I think, I don't mean to be mean, but I think this is going to be a flop. Uh, you know, I'd be happily proved to be wrong. Uh, you know, I exercise a lot. I've got my Apple Watch on here. So I am probably in their prime demographic, but I just have absolutely no interest in this. And I also love Peloton. 
And um, this whole quote from Benedict Evans, and, and I respect him from Andreessen Horowitz, but I don't think he understands that, I don't even think Peloton delivers their own uh, product. No, they don't. They use XPO and, and JB Hunt final mile logistics. So the whole notion that Apple doesn't want to get into the transportation business, to me, just doesn't make any sense whatsoever because they actually pay people to deliver that stuff for them. But. Yeah, I mean, this wouldn't be the first time Apple has come late to the party and then completely redefined the party. I mean, we saw this with Apple Watches, AirPods. I mean, the, the list goes on. So it wouldn't surprise me if it does well, but I agree with you. I have absolutely no interest in this. I think this is kind of just a, a, a something for them to keep their margins up uh, and, and move forward, be able to bundle different things together. I'm not too excited about it. And also, I hate working out at home. So I'm, never, I'm probably never going to be uh, a a Peloton user or a, an Apple Plus, Apple Fitness Plus guy. All right, so the last one we got here is new car sales in China. They're absolutely booming. Uh, it's cementing the recovery story in the world's second largest economy. New, new vehicle sales grew 8% year over year to 2.1 million vehicles in November. Seth, you care or not about China car sales? I do. Um, you know, Tesla's doing really well in China. Um, China kind of has a barbelled market where we talked about because you've got a lot of people buying these sort of high-end Neo and Tesla, and there's about five or 10 others participating in that market. And you're getting gen generous tax credits. Yep. And I think that actually the Chinese government's doing a really good job uh, incentivizing the growth of the elect electric vehicle market over there, maybe arguably significantly better than we are over here because they realize that that's going to be the future and they've got a lot of problems with pollution and they don't have those sort of legacy GMs and pensions and 200, you know, 150 yep. year old companies that they've got to manage around. Uh, and so I think they're able to sort of come at it at a, at a freer, uh, fresher thinking approach. So uh, I do care. And uh, China, uh, Tesla, They've got the Giga Shanghai going uh, really well there. And so Tesla's interesting because they're one of the only, you know, you can only rattle, rattle off maybe a handful of companies where the Chinese government has not only essentially blessed, but they kind of welcome American products into the, into the country. Yeah, agreed. Uh, Tesla just got the approval for Shanghai-made Model Ys to be sold in China next year. That was huge for them. Everybody expected it, but it was big news for it to come. Speaking of the Chinese government incentivizing EV, so EV and new energy vehicles. So I think they, they group hybrids in here as well. But that demand surged 128% year over year in November. They sold 180,000 uh, EV or new energy vehicles in November alone. I, I don't know what the number is in the U.S., but I'd be willing to bet that's close to the full year number. Right. And I mean, you can understand that. I mean, uh, if I'd like to buy a Model 3 one day, um, for, but, you know, the 40, 45,000, something like that, um, depending on if, if you add on the software. But yep. if, it, if they offer me a 15 or $20,000 incentive, I'd be a lot more likely to, to buy that car. And I think that's what you're seeing there in those numbers. Precisely. All right. Let's hop into logistics hiring. It is has exploded ahead of the holiday season and throughout the holiday season so far. So overall, the U.S. economy gained 245,000 jobs last month. Uh, as hiring slowed sharply from the October increase of 610,000 jobs. But package carriers added almost 82,000 jobs in November. That's the largest monthly gain in 23 years. Delivery, warehousing, and trucking operators added a combined 131,000 jobs last month. And, uh, and these fields, so here, here's the big data point here. Those fields gained nearly three times as many jobs last month as in October and accounted for more than half of the increase in payrolls across the entire employment sectors in November. So let me repeat that. Logistics was half of all added jobs in November. Trucking payrolls do remain about 55,000 jobs below uh, their level a year ago, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. So Seth, what do you think, man? Is warehousing the new retail? Or are we, are we, are we just going to see constant growth in warehousing here uh, for the next few years? 
So by warehousing, do you mean all-encompassing, like a lot, uh, so 82,000 of those jobs were in parcel, which is stuff like UPS. You're talking about e-commerce and then the, the, the fact that, you know, the mix shift from uh, physical retail to e-commerce. Yeah, I mean, I do think that a lot of that is permanent. Same way with food delivery and same way with spending on goods. I do think you're going to see some natural deceleration there, but the overall economy should grow better too next year. So there could be a little bit of an offsetting effect there. Um, but really impressive when you add these together, I mean, you're talking about over 200,000 jobs of the 245 within transportation and logistics. So, um, and then, and then when it comes to trucking, you're starting to see that tick up and we can get into that a little bit more. We discussed that. I think it was two weeks ago, these new truck orders just continue to surge. I think they tripled year over year, which, um, in the latest month. So whether they're going to be able to seat those or not, but you're still down 55,000 year over year, which is a, you know, a couple percentage points on, on two, a little over 2 million drivers. Yes. So something important to note here is that these package carriers uh, adding 82,000 jobs in November, that doesn't include any any package carriers that are working for shipped or working for uh, or Postmates or anything else, any of these gig economy companies. Right. And there's hundreds of thousands of those that are working now delivering packages uh, on e-commerce. Uh, that's a good point. Yeah. So does it include Amazon's? Uh if they were employees, I think it would. Yeah. Uh, but if they're contractors, then no, wow. uh, it wouldn't. Yeah, so, so, yeah, you got to so think probably, the numbers so significantly probably significantly higher. more because that's going to be a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, I think I read uh, uh, Shipped alone has 200,000 people <laughs> delivering goods from, uh, and most of those are coming from Target. But it, it's remarkable how many drivers and how many people they have out here delivering goods. So how quickly, let's talk about trucking for a moment since everything else is exploding. Trucking still a little bit behind. I, th- I think we're, what, about 4%? Uh, I think it's about 4% below uh, pre-COVID employment levels. We're seeing these massive truck orders. We're seeing massive trailer orders. How quickly do you think we can recover to pre-COVID employment uh, in the trucking segment? Good question. I would say if I was just to take a stab in the dark at that, I would say 6 to 12 months. Um, yeah, or back to pre-COVID levels. Yeah. I, I don't think, I mean, so wages are going up a lot. Yep. Uh, vaccines are probably six months off. Yep. Uh, so if, if in terms of the drivers that are scared to be out there for health reasons, that's probably, you know, that's going to take a little while. Now, the unemployment uh, stimulus stuff uh, probably had something to do with it as well. And then the driver training schools. I mean, it's going to take six months to a year to work through it. However, to me, at least, I think those new truck orders have gotten really concerning if you are very bullish longer term on the trucking market, because. Uh, I think it was the third or fourth highest month in 40 years of data uh, at, at ACT Research. So uh, as bad as truck orders were just six months ago, they're, like, they're almost off the chart again yep. to 2018 levels. And I understand that the, you know, you're playing catch up beyond those enterprise fleets uh, in terms of the, the average age got extended and a lot of the factories were shut down. But there's no way that orders are tripling year over year, and that's all going to be attributed to, uh, you know, just just sort of uh, replacements of, of old uh, trucks. I, I, I don't buy that. Yeah, so. as much as as much as Derek Leathers would like it to be, and he pitches it as that, uh, I don't think it's that either. I think another thing to note here is that we, we're down 55,000 jobs from pre-COVID levels in trucking alone. Obviously, not all of those are drivers. There was a lot of back office job shed, uh, dispatchers and such. But I think we, we went this entire time talking so far, and we haven't talked about the, the um, drug and alcohol clearinghouse, which um, 
which, which CEO, what was, what was Craig's brother's name? <laughs> Eric Fuller. Eric Fuller. Thank you. My goodness. Uh, he's really on top of this drug clearing house. And he says there's been about 40,000 or 50,000 drivers taken off there. So, I mean, yep. So when you add those amount. together, you're talking about more like a hundred thousand on a base of 2.3, 2.4 million drivers. It's like 5% or uh, whatever. It's my math, right? I yeah, think. I think so. And, and the thing is that we've seen this in 2018, that it doesn't take much to flip the imbalance completely from supply and demand. Demand falls two, 3% and drivers go up two, 3% and you all of a sudden go from $3 a mile to $1.50. Yeah. So when it comes to the overall trucking, I mean, I'm less, I think the economy recovers nicely in 2021. Uh, I'm less concerned about demand, right. And more concerned about supply, which okay. is exactly what we're talking about. Like I think load, load volumes overall and truckload should hold up pretty well. And even, even, even when you have those headwinds going back to more services spendings and that negative mix shift, yep. that should be offset. Uh, you know, if the economy grows 5% rather than contracts 5 or 10%, that's going to provide a, a headwind to kind of offset some of that tailwind. So hard to say, but, um, you know, I do think it's worth keeping a close eye on the capacity side of, of things right now. Yeah, I think one of the point to note here is that, you know, we're like you said, we're probably about six months away from a vaccine, but I don't even think it's so much about when the vaccine will be here. It's about when the vaccine starts changing consumer behavior, when, when, it, you know, how many people have to get the vaccine before people are willing to go out and get on an airplane again? Because even if I have a, have the vaccine, I don't, you know, I don't know if I'm so willing to just jump on an airplane. That's a good point. I, for me personally, if, if I got the vaccine, I think I'd be pretty fearless in terms of yeah. going, wouldn't you? I, I mean, possibly, I'm not, I'm not afraid to go fly any anymore. Yeah. I mean, uh, I'm not even afraid, afraid to fly now. I'm I would saying, think it'll I'm be sure pretty, in other words, I'm trying to say, I think it'll be pretty quick, okay. uh, faster than people think. And, and I actually have, we don't have time to discuss this, but I have another contrarian thesis that I think that travel con, and this is leisure travel Yep. in 2021 by the back half of the year will be a lot of, of if you annualize it will be far ahead of 2019 yeah, because okay. people are dying to go on a cruise mm -hmm. on an international vacation to the Caribbean. And I think that you will see an explosion in consumer. Now, some of that business I think is permanently impaired, like flying to Tokyo for an hour long meeting, like when you can just zoom uh, that, I think you can make a very good argument that that's permanently impaired at, to, at least to some degree. But I think travel will boom in 2022. Um, um, for a lot of the airlines and cruises and all that kind of thing. Yeah, you're right. We don't have time to dive into it today, but I will put it on the docket for uh, the next couple yeah. of weeks. We'll, we'll get into that one. So last conversation of the day is about the possibility for a new landscape in the LTL market. This is a, this is a big statement, but uh, we're going to talk about the SoftBank investment in Flock Freight. So SoftBank just led a $113.5 million investment in a California-based Flock Freight. They are a U.S. software startup that offers a service that uses algorithms to match trucks with freight headed in the same direction. So think of it as uh, the same way that Uber and Lyft uh, share, they pool drivers and they have multiple people riding in the car going to the same similar locations. Think of it similar to that. This round, this latest round comes just seven months after it raised $50 million back in February. The deal now values Flock Freight at roughly $500 million. Seth, you want to take a stab? Just give us 30 seconds if you can explain the business model uh, from abroad, 40,000 feet up. Sure. Uh, flock freight, basically, okay, so if if you want to ship goods by uh, truckload, right, 
it, forget intermodal and rail, but if you want to ship them by truck, you basically got three options. You've got a full truckload, you've got LTL, and you've got shared truckload. So what Flock Freight does is shared truckload. And what the pain points that they're trying to solve is a lot of time, uh, LTL is characterized by its hub and spoke system. Mm -hmm. What that does is if you're only shipping a couple pallets, say you're a retailer or manufacturer only shipping a couple pallets a week, you end up paying more it takes longer and it, and it can be inefficient. Say it's going from the West Coast, it may stop at five terminals with four different line haul drivers. And, um, and, uh, and then also you're, 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 you have to palletize things and you're subject to size and space uh, restraints. And so this aims to solve all those issues by using algorithms and technology to pair everybody, say Andrew's business and Seth's business are both shipping you know, X number of pallets and they're both going from Chattanooga to New York, combine our truckloads together, save us all money, save us time, save us delays and damages. That's the idea. And you, we both have a little bit of skepticism, right? Whether it's uh, because of the density or just the difficulty of the business. What do you think? Do you think, it, do you think it's possible for them to take a significant portion of the LTL market here? Uh, do you think that, do you think it's going to be possible? Yeah, sure. It's possible. Um, you know, uh, I don't know. We, I, I don't think we either of us know LTL as intimately as we know truckload. Uh, it sounds this business model sounds great on the surface. It is a big market. LTL is about 60, 70 billion dollar market in the U.S. So it's not that big of a company. I think they have a good idea and a good business model. Uh, and so I don't think they have to take any, you know, I mean, just taking 5% of that would be, and uh, LTL is fragmented, mm -hmm. not nearly as much as truckload. I think the top 10 carriers in LTL have like 40%, whereas they might have 8, 8%. So I think it'll be harder to take market share, but um, it's a big market and it's a good idea. Yeah. So here's a quote from the founder and CEO, Oren, I'm not going to try his last name, but his, his name's Oren. He said, the technology requirements are really brutal. So when, when he was asked uh, what he's going to do with the money, they said they're going to focus on technology, hiring engineers, hiring machine learning people uh, to build out the program. There's huge network effects here that every customer they add, the, the better it is for everyone else. But I just don't know. There's a lot of density problems. You're going to have, I mean, you're going to have to have a lot of people in Chattanooga if you're going to move a full truckload, uh, you know, a, in a, on a consistent basis from New York or from, from Chattanooga to New York. So yeah. I am skeptical, but I'm, I'm very excited about the idea. I love all of these new companies that are coming in and trying to go under niche inefficiencies in the market. Baton's another one. We saw them in the Freight Tech 100 or yep. Freight Tech 25 this year. Uh, so I like the idea. Well, let's, we're going to come back to this conversation because we don't have enough time to go in depth because I want to talk about what you would do if you were ODFL, if you're yeah. Old Dominion or SIA, one of the major players in the industry, and you really think that Flock Freight can take a percentage of your business. And we'll talk about whether Flock Freight should even invite that type of investment. But that'll, we'll, come back, we'll come back with that in a couple of weeks. You can find everything on demand at Freight Waves TV. We'll be back next week from the North American Supply Chain Summit. See you guys later.